you know, I, again, I can't go on LinkedIn without somebody banging the drum about AI. We as an industry, not just sport, but marketing and advertising focus, and we just love to jump onto stuff. Trends are a fundamental's worst enemy. Hey there, James here, and you're listening to the Own the Moment podcast, the show where we explore the complex and always evolving landscape of marketing, advertising, and branding, and try to get to the bottom of what it means to be a truly memorable brand. The Own the Moment podcast is brought to you by Como Technologies, a self-service, complete customer engagement platform that helps you cut through the noise to truly connect with your customers and retain and grow those connections over time. With Como, you can build and deploy new campaigns, activations, promotions, and programs in days, not months. And our software is used by some of the world's biggest consumer brands from Heineken to Budget, Goodman Fielder, Foxtel, JLL, Williams Racing, and McDonald's. Learn more at como.tech. Today's guest is Ollie Scheuer the head of marketing and content at Rugby Australia, the code's governing body here down under. It's an interesting time for global sport. Live sport is almost single-handedly keeping linear TV alive, whilst at the same time, sports codes and leagues all over the world are scrambling to make sure they can continue to stay relevant for each new generation. Ollie and I had a fascinating discussion around why most sports teams don't do the fundamentals of marketing well, we pondered what global sport would look like if it was run by marketers from Unilever, and we talked about what the lasting legacy of new sports media like Drive to Survive or The Last Dance will be on global sport. If you're a sports fan, this is an episode you just cannot miss. I hope you enjoy the show. Oli Shoya, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I wanted to start with a quote, Ollie, that I found on your LinkedIn, which was, for Gen Z, sport uh, is as much about what happens off the pitch than on it. Talk to me about that. You know, you're obviously very experienced in the uh, sports marketing space. What's happening with Gen Z and sport? It's funny when you blanket an entire generation with a term. To be honest with you, I think that there's a broader remit to extend beyond kind of the generational categorization of what's happening with sport. But um I'm quite lucky to have come into sport from outside of category and, you know, to bring with that kind of a bit of knowledge and insight in terms of kind of how probably more commercially private savvy businesses work. But it's a good question. But the more you try and build a brand on winning or try and build a brand on the on-field product, the harder it gets to make it relevant to a wide audience. And I think particularly when you look at the younger generations and what's happened from not just a, I guess, a sports consumption, you know, whether it be viewership or attendance, but particularly participation is there is a gap there. There's certainly a drop off in some instances and particularly for Australian sport and the ability to get these people engaged in sport and then keep them engaged in sport is probably getting harder and harder and you need to be probably a little bit more smarter with regards to the activity that you can do. And yeah, not everybody loves sport, but sport is obviously from a product remit and experience and I guess that's the best thing about working in sport is because there's the idea of kind of whether it be going down to the park to kick a footy around with mates or to turn up to a stadium and watch you know in my instance the Wallabies take on the All Blacks the rounded experience is so much more than kind of the on-field result and in fact the more that you can distance yourself from that on-field result the more that you can actually rely on having a product that people want to engage regardless of the on-field result and, you know, those 50 nil losses, not in our instance and certainly hopefully not in the near future, become less of a driver for kind of commercial outcome. 
Yeah, well, I'm a West Coast Eagles fan, so, you know, 100-point oh. losses have been the norm for me over the last... Yeah, yeah, it's, it's been a tough couple of years for you. <laughs> yeah, it's been tough. But so what, what do you think's driving this? I mean, I guess, you know, like you say, I think the generational science thing is a little bit of a dodgy sort of area. So what's driving that drop-off? I guess conventional wisdom would be attention spans, <laughs> TikTok, Netflix, Fortnite. What's yeah. your take on what's driving that change? If you look beyond the nuances of sport and what that looks like by way of a product, but everything has a substitute. And I think, you know, the longer life goes and the more technology evolves and particularly now looking at a cost of living crisis, you're always looking for substitutes. And, you know, you've mentioned a couple of them there. And again, I can't definitively suggest, you know, without a science degree that people's neurological capacity to hold attention is genuinely changing or if it's just that Maybe we're all a bit more ADHD because we mm. you know, have tools that make us more distracted than ever. But uh, it's just kind of the world we live in is everything's within reach. It's within demand, on demand. You needn't go far to kind of find a way of addressing boredom. I think we've all gotten very bad at being bored. I don't know if anybody's actually become capable of just sitting and being in the moment. And you know, that's why live sport's always been a great opportunity to address those types of things because so much happening at any given moment in and around just what's happening on field. But it'd be a whole combination of those things. And and that's why sport can't continue to follow the status quo, both commercially but also on field and what that product looks like simply because people have different needs, people have different behaviours, we're evolving different habits, how we consume things is changing. I think choice is such a big part of it. And so if there was a silver bullet, there'd be a lot of really wealthy governing bodies and team owners but it's genuinely a thing that all sport is needing to address you know not just from a younger demo perspective either i mean that's the easy one to cling to i think it was mark ritson or kind of one of those wonderful individuals has always said that you know when you're younger you always go out more and spend less time watching tv and you know have more things to do and it's like you know we were all young ones right so it's kind of this idea that you're at a different stage of lifestyle and as you get older, obviously what's important to you, what you enjoy doing, how much free time and disposable income you've got to do all that stuff changes. So it's a constant focus, I think, for all sports with regards to not just how they keep the young people engaged and involved in sport, but also as they age out, how do you continue to make sport and the experience of sport relevant? Yeah, it's interesting because I found this quote online. The quote was, if you lose a generation, it destroys value in the connective tissue. And I think that's really interesting because, you know, it's, I guess, like most of us that are into sport have memories of whether it's their mum or their dad or whatever. It's like, you know, that's that's sort of the vehicle by which passion and fandom are sort of, you know. It's not something to be undermined. And to be honest with you, like you could apply it to even just like kids vote for who their parents voted for. They bank who their parents banked with. So there's obviously a significant role and remit particularly and that's why obviously advertising is such a low form of persuasion compared to things like recommendations from family and friends and because you look for trust and cues for what i should do and you know again status quo prevails in many instances but it's the same for sport and actually i would go so far and you know particularly i've obviously come from the afl world i'm in rugby union now afl is the juggernaut of australian sport rugby union particularly i guess on the eastern seaboard was seen as a juggernaut of sport probably about 20 years ago. But they all, particularly with, I guess, a 
population that continues to be expansively not just well, again, I think it's about 50, 51% of Australia is first or second generation migrants. So these people are growing up with different sports or different ways to kind of engage with what they do when they're younger. So that generational connection at sport is so vital. And again, you look at your kind of traditional Aussie rule states and the kids taking on a membership because mum and dad had a membership. And, you know, and again, you look and then apply it to rugby union. And it's something that that quote that you just read out, I, I should probably print it up and stick it out because it's often something that's spoken about quite a lot when it comes to rugby in Australia is and to be honest with you and I can quite comfortably put my hand up and say that you know throughout kind of the late 90s the early 2000s I could have told you the entire Wallaby squad I knew those guys names off by heart but you go and ask people now and they're going to you know probably struggle a bit and same from a participation and consumption and you know attendance like there is room to suggest that the growth of the game, it's got to be sustained over the long term. And if you do miss out on a couple of years or you do overlook a, you know, the need to be in market and visible in market for a long period of time, you're going to struggle to get back those people that suddenly had no interest or no kind of priming to why they would want to be involved in rugby union later down the track. And there is lots of kind of work that's been done. And this is obviously elevates just how important getting kids into the system to play the sport is because play the sport you're more likely to become a fan of the sport and obviously the opportunity and the thinking and again I can't pretend to know any of the hardcore data but the thinking is get them young and they'll be a fan forever yeah people's lives change and the type of fan that they are and how long that kind of lasts is again kind of dependent on many factors but it goes back to that kind of cost of acquisition if you get them young when they're cheaper how much money can you make out of them over 20 30 years time if they go on to be a fan So Tim Ellis, who's the CMO at the NFL, had this great quote, which is, you know, there's no strategy for bringing in a 35-year-old fan for the first time. You have to make them a fan by the time they're 18 or you'll lose them forever, which is what you're saying there. I was going to say, I'm certainly not in a place to challenge someone like that at such a level, but, you know, I don't disagree with that. And it certainly kind of makes a solid point, but I'm also of the school of thought that like most categories, sport regardless of whether it be participation, attendance, it is very much what you would expect to see. You've got your heavy buyers, you've got your light buyers, and right. most sports rely heavily on reaching those 35-year-olds that might only go to one game every five years, but you get enough of them and they're worth a lot to you. And again, I don't mean to commercialise it so much, but... I was just about to say, I, you know, I tend to agree. I mean, just if I look at myself, I mean, looking at something like the UFC, you know, which you know, I'm 35 and, you know, I've gotten into that recently and, you know, what, I wasn't watching that 10 years ago and have mm. gotten quite into that now. So I think, right, that quote's, you know, fairly sort of doom and gloom. And I think, you know, there's probably a bit of truth there, especially, I guess, around that sort of generational fandom and those yeah. sort of, you know, yeah, all in, rusted on forever. But, you know, there's still certainly an opportunity with, you know, attracting that new fan. Something I want to touch on is, you know, I guess a trend we've seen over the last few years is shortening the formats, obviously the Big Bash League and cricket and even the AFL tried AFLX, you know, I guess to sort of mixed results. And obviously, you know, cricket's been doing that with the one-day series for decades now. What's your take on that? Is that something we're going to see more of? It's a very good question. I, again, having not worked in cricket and only kind of having that old kind of looking into the tent from the outside, I think there's probably a lot of people that would hang their hat on the suggestion that 2020 cricket probably saved the sport to a great extent, particularly in terms of what you're talking about before, about whether it be the 35-year-old or the 18-year-old or the family market. Like, How do you make a product relevant to a market that 
is currently not engaging, has a product that was dissipating. So, you know, uh, 50 over cricket, one day cricket, was, which was the short format of cricket, you know, initially, they could see a trend in decline. Obviously, you know, just remember all the, the news articles and stuff about, you know, growing up, Michael Bevan, Steve Waugh, Ricky Ponting, you know, these guys are playing in full stadiums. And then you go back 10 years ago and you'd have a one day and you'd be lucky to have 15,000 people in it. So It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And it's frightening, right? Because albeit these things don't happen quickly, they happen quick enough to the point where you're just like, how did that happen? Yeah, because I mean, even like to your point, if I go back 20 years, you know, I was never in like a crazy cricket fan, but it did feel like, and look, I think there's maybe a broader point here, which is like this sort of fracturing of like mainstream cultural moments or something. It's, I guess, as sort of Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. going back to your choice point where it felt like, you know, everyone I knew was following the cricket, (laughs) you know, 20 years ago. And now to your point, you know, I know Australia won a match, an Ashes match yesterday, but, you know, I'd sort of struggle probably to sort of name all 11 yeah, yeah, yeah. players, which is, so I think there's there's something there around, I guess, this sort of, you know, sports maybe sort of lost its mainstream grasp on mainstream culture, I guess. Yeah, well, particularly for those kind of typical Australian sports, right, that we have overperformed in. So, you know, again, you go back to the 90s and the early noughties, cricket, rugby, these were the big international platforms to which Australia kind of over-indexed on, you know. It, it really fit into that broader narrative of the Aussie battler and the challenger that, you know, this David versus Goliath thing. And, you know, I think there's an element of still wanting to own that, but, you know, the rest of the world woke up to the fact that for our population, we're an unbelievable sporting country. We over-index in many things. But as the years have gone by, you go back to those days of cricket being on free-to-air and it being primetime viewing. Now you've got so many different choices in terms of products. You've got access to international sports that you never had Mm. or they were really hard to get to. And again, it's all at the press of a button. And it's not expensive. You know, you get a Stan Sport or a KO subscription and you can watch pretty much every sport there is to offer. It's only the kind of those main events, which weirdly enough, I often spend my time thinking about UFC and why there's such a global big fan base when actually it's not easy to discover or access. What's your take on that? Do you know what? Like, yeah, I mean, obviously just an incredible, powerful marketing machine and the way that they use their fighters as their assets. Obviously not new to sport in terms of leveraging players as brand touch points and personalities, but I don't know. I mean, Dana White's done a phenomenal job there. Obviously, they've recently kind of merged with the WWE in terms of building this. I mean, look, that's going to change the media landscape. When you talk about sport and how sport is kind of diversified and rolled out, I think everybody's sitting here watching going, geez, how's this going to roll out and what does this mean? You know, I think they'll be very brave and they'll be very experimental and it could either be a whole bunch of noise and they end up burning all their cash or it could be an unbelievable outcome that changes the game of sports spectatorship and particularly those that really borderline on the proposition of entertainment and product. And so I guess going back to your original question of, of shorter format and what's my take on it, I don't know, sometimes I feel like I'm a little bit of an anomaly that exists in the sports landscape because I love learning. I'm a big sucker for the fundamentals of marketing. I've been lucky enough to have multiple conversations and engagements with the likes of Byron Sharp and Mark and met some unbelievable people in my career that I've learned on, particularly when I was in advertising. But I guess, you know, you look at it as brand extensions and kind of the diversification of the product to if you put it up against the typical segmentation model, you like, well, this is the product for that segment and this is the product for that segment. You know, it's like 
what's your your mini Coke can versus, you know, your Coke bottle. And I just think the shorter format, and we're very lucky, and actually rugby is one of the sports that seem to be kind of ahead of the curve when it came to that shorter format because we do have sevens. And sevens, I won't say this too loudly in front of too many people, but sevens is probably my favorite product by way of its capacity to support the growth of rugby. So we have a genuine, unbelievable entertainment proposition product. It's shorter format. So, you know, all those things you're talking about, attention span, and and it's, it's not even attention span. It's just the ability to allow people to consume when they've got more going on in their life because it's not a huge commitment. And I think that's another thing that everybody needs to be mindful of, that attending and consuming sport is a commitment, right? You usually have to set aside a few hours. But Everybody's cottoning on to that. You know, you can watch a Premier League game now in 20 minutes because Optus Sport will give you your breakdown and, and let you choose the format and how much time you want to give up to spending it. So the opportunity for the shorter format, and again, cricket have done a, a great job, is to go beyond, I guess, the hurdles or the potential barriers of the longer format. And again, NFL have done it recently by bringing back XFL, but I know they've had their challenges. But yeah, leveraging a more entertainment proposition that goes beyond just hardcore sport to introduce new fans, engage new fans, potentially bring back churn fans. I heard a wonderful thing many years ago, and I don't know how true it is, but when 2020 Cricket launched, all the avid hardcore cricket fans were like, oh, this is ridiculous, you're killing the game. And then what happened, because they're the avid cricket fans and they want to be across all the cricket news and they want to make sure that they can talk about all cricket product, they started absorbing this because obviously they want to be able to absorb all things cricket. And so you don't ostracize, I mean, obviously how you go to market and and what that looks like. And I know AFL experimented with that with AFLX and obviously kind of took that even further with it being more of an exhibition type thing, you know, and particularly the opportunity too for translating AFL, which is a oval sport into a square sport and what that could mean for international expansion outside of markets that don't have cricket ovals. So yeah, look, it gives you a whole bunch of opportunity like kind of any additional product does. I love it. I think it's great. You know, again, all sports are toying with the idea and playing with it and some have done it really successfully. But like anything, it requires long-term investment. It requires the capacity of making sure that people are aware of it, giving them the chance to turn up and perhaps just accepting that first year, second year, third year, fourth year, they're not going to be sellouts. You know, like anything, you've got to build demand for these products and you do it long enough, you do it consistently enough, and you do it well enough. And, and obviously, like anything, you know, you could sustain a pretty good outcome. I want to come back to marketing fundamentals. I think that's really interesting and sort of rugby more generally. But a couple more things on, I guess, the sort of changing landscape of sport. So what do you make of, like, obviously, I guess some of the biggest news over the last few years in the space was, say, Drive to Survive, which, you know, was, I mean, speaking of mainstream cultural moments, and I think what's fascinating, uh, just to pull out some stats here, I mean, viewership for the 2022 season was up 60% on 2019. And, you know, the F1 are reporting that audiences are getting younger and more diverse as a result of Drive to Survive. And even just anecdotally, like in my friend group, seeing people that would have been the last people you expect to get into motorsport suddenly and getting into motorsport so what's your take on i guess you know drive to survive i guess you could bundle in the last dance in there and this sort of content entertainment first approach to the sport what's your sort of take on that i love it and to be honest with you uh, and just for clarity so in my remit at work i look after the entire content side of things as well as obviously kind of the advertising and and a remit of earned media but look i mean i don't come out of a meeting without someone saying 
what does the drive to survive for rugby look like? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah, and you know, and you sit down, and 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 again, you turn on Netflix, and you're like, oh, look, from the producers of Drive to Survive comes a docu series about the um, Tour de France. Oh, look, there's one about tennis. So let's go back to the original, I guess, remit, and you know, pioneers. F1 were pioneers, and F1 have always been quite renowned for being very tight with their rights and the ability for people to use their rights. And, you know, obviously with the changeover, when Liberty Media kind of took over from Bernie Eccleston, it opened up a whole new world of opportunity. And obviously, you know, it goes back to that idea of accessibility, but how do you make something which is predominantly just cars going around and around in a circle? And I'll put my hand up and suggest I'm a big F1 fan. I love the F1, but I didn't used to be. And I am one of those suckers that got drawn in by Drive to Survive. Now, when you talk about younger audiences or kind of people that aren't mad sports fans, and again, sports content in, in this idea is nothing new. Amazon, you know, they did it with the All Blacks and Man City well before all of this. And so, you know, that all or nothing, I think it was, series. So it's not new, but what they did was they took something that has been quite inaccessible, something that has a perception as being for quite typically, you know, the old pale and stale rich white man. You know, it was the elitist sport, which again, I'm sure rugby has a little bit of a reputation of. And they made it accessible and they made it relevant for everyone. And, you know, this is the power of content and not the power of content from the perspective of, oh, you know, you can build a brand solely with social media, but actually the ability to allow people to realize that a sport is a lot more than just Mm. what you see on field or on track. You know, the best thing about that was you were invited. And and this is obviously something that sports clubs and governing bodies and stuff have known for a long time. That access is critical, taking people behind the scenes. And this is where these things live. But, you know, you get introduction to profile and personalities and story arcs and narratives. Now, a lot of it is probably manufactured. And I think Drive to Survive by about season three got slapped on the wrist for that, that it became quite obvious. And stop people from watching. And again, going back to that idea, like what we're talking about, shorter format, when you move beyond just kind of like the on-field athleticism and the highlights and you go towards more of that entertainment proposition, obviously entertainment is different for everyone. And so this is a really smart way, obviously, of engaging people in a sport and getting them interested in a sport by not shoving the sport down their throat with regards to kind of that actual product. It's getting people to buy in. And again, we know the younger generations like to follow personalities before they follow clubs or sports. And so, but I think the one thing that probably often gets missed out of a lot of these sports content things, and this is the power of the likes of Netflix, is distribution. You know, this wasn't just about a wonderful content series. This was about the fact that it was put in a place where millions upon millions of people had subscribed and could watch it. And again, they invested heavily in obviously the production of that. So it was top quality, but also they promoted the shit out of it. So yeah, I love them. I'm a sucker for them. I watch them all. Obviously spend a lot of time thinking and talking about what that could or would look like. And yeah, so I think it's a great idea. Whether or not we're past the point of saturation, like anything, you know, it's like The Bachelor. Everybody loved that when it first came out. And then there were 17,000 versions of Mm. it. Like at what point does it get to seen this, done this, too familiar. There's always going to be that element, but I think more broadly the opportunity to use distribution and to actually present the product in a different way. So, again, less about the sport and more about the lifestyle of the sport and the personalities. I mean, that stuff that people connect with, you don't have to be a sports fan to connect with that stuff. Right, and I guess, you know, going back to that people follow personalities before teams, you know, and I guess, you you know, the messy deal, 
now with Inter Miami. I mean, it's just like that's clearly that's what's happening there, right? And I think that was interesting, uh, you know, from a couple of, you know, I guess the sort of that he got equity in the team. He's apparently getting a cut of all the um, Apple TV Apple sub- yep, yep, subscriptions. Right. So I think there's a lot happening there. You mentioned sort of marketing fundamentals, which I think is really interesting. You know, you said when we sort of were prepping for this that potentially there's been a lack of marketing fundamentals in sport, something you've seen up close. Tell me sort of what's what's happening there? What is happening within sports and sports marketing? And I will caveat when I say that I guess a lack of marketing fundamentals. Look, unbelievably talented. I've been very lucky to, you know, at least in the sports side, to work with amazing people. I think the challenge for sport more broadly is that it continues to live in a week-by-week proposition that does hang its hat on weekend results. So with that comes a very reactive nature. There is a lot of, you know, chasing trends or trying to capitalize on trends. I think, and again, this is just from my perspective, and very happy to always be proven wrong, but there is probably, I guess, a lack of, I don't want to say understanding, but probably a lack of kind of consideration for just how important share of voice in market is. And there is a big reliance on owned media when it comes to sport to do that heavy lifting for you. So, you know, digital content, social media, website, and again, like sports tend to be probably underinvested by way of resourcing. So there's always a lot of stuff to do with not a lot of people. So yeah, look, I just think there's an element of the environment and the nature. Again, a lot of probably really well-intentioned people that are fans of either the sport or the team that then do anything to get their dream job that potentially maybe lack the fundamental understanding from a commercial perspective. And so you get these wonderfully hardworking people that are just go, go, go. But I think often, you know, I say quite regularly, you spend half an hour more at the beginning of the process to save yourself five minutes at the end, you know, because it's this idea of trying to be as prepared and planned and strategic. And again, quite rightly, a lot of sports organizations have multiple priorities. And so kind of that constant combat with lack of focus results in inability to some extent to hold or maintain the fundamentals. So yeah, there's a large combination. You know, you can see it more broadly and particularly like some of the initiatives we've spoken about today, which are very tactical, but they're born out of people with very good strategic grasp of what's our problem and how are we going to fix that. And it's not always through, you know, when I say share a voice, obviously that lends itself to promotion. But yeah, you, know, you see a lot of people working on product and the product right and a lot of people getting you know, like we're talking about the distribution through Netflix and how do you get the, the sport in front of people. You know, these are all things that are constantly spent a lot of time pricing. Again, you know, huge amount of pricing considerations in sport because, you know, we sell a lot and it's very dynamic in terms of what we sell. There's a lot there. I could probably speak about that for hours. Mm. But, you know, I've come from outside of sport and, you know, and again, this is nothing to do with my experience or where I've been. But, you know, I, I think that, Perhaps some sports or some organizations are worried that people that come from outside of sport don't understand the culture. They don't understand the team. They don't understand what we're trying to do. And so, like, I often think about, I wonder what a world would look like of a sports club run, at least from a marketing remit, of people hired from Unilever. Mm, Fascinating question. I don't know, but I suspect you're touching on something fairly true there. And I can really see how that happens, that it's people that are desperate to be close to their passion and write a bunch of Unilever execs. That'd be a a really interesting experiment. So on that, let's dig into a couple of those things. So how do you think about sort of differentiation and distinctiveness in sport? So, you know, we're in a highly competitive environment and maybe, you know, use maybe rugby in Australia as an example. How do you guys think about 
differentiating and being distinctive? I, um, particularly coming from advertising world and advertising agency where, you know, every agency loves to pitch to their client of, oh, no, you've got to do it differently. You know, you've got to do it differently. And so let's spend time actually building out your USPs and kind of how you're different to the category. And then I guess rightly or wrongly, you know, I'm hoping the people on the, uh, I guess, evidence-based side would say definitely rightly, like I bought and into the theory and immersed myself into the theory of how does the human brain work and how do people make decisions and how does advertising work? And I do very much sit on the side of the fence of distinction and standing out and grabbing attention. And again, a lot of the work that Karen Nelson Field's doing around attention metrics and, and you know, being in a position of genuine understanding, like what's important and what's not. But then also, well, you know, particularly when you start thinking about positioning and how you want to actually get people to choose you over others, there are elements of differentiation that you want to highlight. But I will say at the end of the day, most sports are the same by way of the actual product. Everybody kind of does the game day experience quite similarly. Anybody that jumps onto something as a first mover advantage to differentiate themselves can often quite quickly get replicated by what others do. Like the barrier to entry for trying to do something that somebody else has done is really low. Like you go on people's social media, you go from channel to channel to sport to sport, they're all the same. Like everybody's doing the same stuff, right? From a perspective of rugby, it's a fascinating one because here in Australia, obviously, we have rugby league and that's a massive sport. You know, I have recently done some work to indicate that perhaps the Australian public's perception of the difference between rugby league and rugby union is, is actually very minimal. Which actually, you know, people will, again, if you get your guard up and again, those well-intentioned people, are like, well, rugby union is the greatest sport and it's much better and and again, I work in it and I, I have to agree, I love rugby, but I also love rugby league and I consume rugby league. And again, most casual sports viewers consume multiple sports. And so there's actually a wonderful opportunity to suggest, well, actually, if we're not that different to rugby league, that means there's a whole bunch of people out there that consume rugby league that would consume rugby union. Mm. And then it becomes a case of, well, how do you avoid misattribution so that when you are in market, people are going, that's rugby union, that's not rugby league. I want to go see a rugby union game. And that's where that distinctiveness is. And, you know, and again, like specifically for Wallabies, historically, I've done a lot of work with Ehrenberg Bass around understanding distinctive assets when it comes to branding, you know, in market so that, you know, again, if you're a challenger brand with a product that's quite similar, you know, what I don't want to do is market rugby union and rugby league cop the benefit of that because people just assume it's rugby league because it's the bigger brand. So, you know, we, when we talk about obviously those marketing laws, so distinctiveness has a huge role to play there. Without maybe going into anything that you can't share. But so what, you know, do you have any examples of where you think you can sort of drive or sort of, I guess, you know, nurture that distinctiveness for union? What sorts of things are helpful there or anything you've maybe tried already and seen success with? Yeah, look, I mean, like from a product perspective, obviously there are elements of our game that league don't have, you know, and so when we go and create a television ad, for instance, we'll want to hero that there's a line out because rugby league doesn't have line outs. And so, you know, yeah, there are small product differences, but with all due respect, it really does come down to, I hate saying it, but obviously leveraging your distinctive assets, your colors, your logo. There's a lot of work that we're continuing to do with regards to what those distinctive assets need to look like. And again, you know, understanding what do we invest in? What do we drop? What do we need to consider? So, yeah, I mean, they're kind of small tricks, but I'd be lying to suggest that we've nailed what that looks like definitively. And again, you know, the rugby union product from a domestic perspective with our super rugby brand compared to the NRL. But obviously, you know, when we talk about the international tournaments, we don't really have a comparison in terms of domestic other than the Socceroos when we talk football. I think it's just 
for us, it's actually about becoming more consistent with what we execute. And when we execute it, not feeling like we need to change things all the time. And I think that's just a common thing that happens in, in you know, it doesn't matter where you are from a marketing side is we get bored of shit quicker than the market does because actually majority of the time the market doesn't see it. So I think consistency and just being really clear about defining what our assets are and then going hell for leather on making sure that when we're in market, they're front and center so that we can build equity in them. Yeah, it's great. I saw something, I can't remember if it was from Ritson or it might have been from System One, but it was exactly that, which is, you know, brands give up on assets and campaigns far too early. Yeah, I think it's actually System One and John Evans has spoken about Mm. it quite a bit. I tend to listen a bit to his stuff too. But this idea that the market is so exposed to our stuff so frequently that they get fatigued from it is actually quite laughable. Because if you think about it from our own perspective as consumers, like we don't get sick of ads. I mean, we get sick of advertising, don't get me wrong. Not a lot of people like advertising, but in terms of, you know, unless somebody's going to saturate a media buy like for one night and you see the same ad five times in the space of 10 minutes, and that happens a lot in BVOD because I know that scheduling sometimes is a bit of a challenge there, but the reality is you never look at that and go, I'm not buying that because I've seen that ad far too no. many times. No, <laughs> no, no. It's funny. It's like it's sort of counterintuitive at first because you're right. That's not how it works at all. I want to move on to something that you've spoken a lot about, even just on your LinkedIn, Ollie, which is this idea of a golden decade for Australian rugby. Yeah. Tell me, I guess, why did you join Rugby Australia? You know, you were at the AFL before. Tell me about sort of the golden decade, what it means, and I guess what's the goal? You know, where can you get to post that? So, yeah, I mean, I was at the AFL. COVID kind of changed that after taking a, I guess, a, a, making a decision to leave there. I took on contracting for a couple of years and back in tourism which is actually where I studied. And then, yeah, I got the opportunity. I got a, an invitation to have a conversation with Rugby Australia. And, you know, look, I happened to be one of those people that kind of fitted the mould of what a rugby fan was back in the late 90s and 2000s, you know, growing up in Sydney and obviously going to a school that was very much a rugby school. You know, you'd come to, I guess, the state, so the Super Rugby at the time. I think it was Super 10 or Super, I can't even remember that, that long ago. You know, Wallabies games were always sold out. and Maybe I'm a, a little kind of aloof in thinking this, but you know, I, again, the opportunity to bring the fundamentals and the passion that I have for marketing and branding and kind of the empirical side of that for research, for you know, market orient, all that stuff. You know, I, sport is a territory that I think there's so much opportunity to actually leverage that stuff to become the best in and the most renowned. Not yeah, the Unilevers. Talking in terms of the organisation, yeah, like. Yeah, that's right. What does the Unilever of a sports club look like, you know, or a governing body? Like that's a wonderfully enticing proposition. And as a passionate sports person and a lover of rugby, it was something that I thought, yeah, you know what, I do want to be back in sports. So that that's kind of how I ended up back at Rugby Australia. And again, the strategic challenge is, is why and big. And so that was appealing, albeit, you know, certainly kind of makes for a lot of sleepless nights and, (laughs) you know, long hours. But I guess then that ladders back to your next question, which is the golden decade. That is very much what offers some huge enticement more broadly about rugby in Australia is because we have this genuine decade. So there is a runway for us to... Quite frankly, I I don't, and this might get me in trouble, but I don't see rugby being the number one, number two, number three sport in Australia. There's more than just AFL and NRL, you know. Tennis is massively regarded and renowned from a popularity perspective in Australia. Obviously, basketball and the combination of NBA and NBL. But actually becoming one of Australia's top sports is a hugely enticing proposition to be part of. We've now got a platform for 10 years that provides us a series of events 
that will give us a huge opportunity to capture lightning in a bottle. My task, and I guess the business's task, is to ensure that that lightning in a bottle doesn't just become a blip and a radar, but becomes, a, I guess, a sustainable platform to keep building on year on year. So the golden decade is in itself, and again, gold, obviously, because when we talk about the Wallabies, the Wallaroos, and our sevens, you know, national teams, you know, obviously they're, they're the gold. That's one of our assets is obviously gold and something that we've started to invest heavily in in terms of actually owning. And, you know, again, you look at, well, in fact, we're about to launch our Rugby World Cup jersey tomorrow based on recording this now. And gold is, is a very important colour to us and it's something that we want to be regarded and renowned for. And so, you know, this golden decade, we've got the Men's Rugby World Cup at the end of this year in France. And again, any World Cup is obviously a big opportunity for a sport like ours. Again, you look at the Socceroos and you look at the Matildas this year, you know, you look at the cricket, you know, there is always a peak of interest, particularly a big sporting nation like Australia who love to get behind their national teams. But more importantly, you know, you put aside the next two years, but in 2025, we've got the British and Irish Lions tour. That's quite possibly the biggest sporting tour you know, and again, so the British Irish Lions will come to Australia for the first time since 2013. There will be a big element of rugby festival with a huge fixture, which I can't speak about because we haven't announced it yet. But, you know, so that's massive. Again, we've got the Women's World Cup in 2025. But then looking at 2027, the World Cup comes to Australia for the men's. At the same time, we also won the bid for the 2029 Women's World Cup, which will also be in Australia. And then in 2032, we have the Brisbane Olympic Games, which our Sevens product are a big part of, right? So Commonwealth Games, and, and I think I've missed the Commonwealth Games there somewhere. But we have genuinely a, a runway here of huge international events that bring huge international audiences and interest that gives us the opportunity to elevate the relevancy and the consumption of rugby. And that's a really, really enticing proposition for anybody, whether or not somebody that's working, whether or not somebody that's considering wanting to play rugby or get involved in rugby for sponsors, for the government. So, yeah, I mean, that's the golden decade in, in kind of in a nutshell to which, you know, the business strategy will be built around that. Mm, I mean, that's so exciting, like you say, I mean, to have a genuine sort of 10-year platform to run for. Ollie, I could sit here and chat about this all day, but I'm conscious of your time. So I thought we could move on to the quick fire round. My first question is your favourite marketing campaign of all time. You know, this is a test of saliency, right? Like what comes to mind I've always loved Snickers, You're Not Yourself When You're Hungry. As a platform and kind of the rollout, I've always enjoyed the execution of those. The way that they execute that is beyond just TV advertising. They've always done great stuff. But yeah, look, I think Snickers is amazing. And what they do as a brand is phenomenal. So yeah, I'll, I'll throw that under there. Yeah, that's a great one. It's not the first time it's come up actually in these discussions. I mean, the tagline is brilliant. The actual creative's brilliant. Yeah. You know, obviously the message is genius. And like, you know, what I like about it is it is one of those things that long running can be extended and, you know, celebrities and, and all that sort of stuff there. That's a great yeah, one. Yeah, I love it. Who do you think is the best brand in the world right now? I'm always curious about Tesla. Like I keep an eye on them and I think we talk about I guess, brand touch points and the positive or negative impact that Elon Musk tends to have. But, you know, again, like they were obviously kind of like the first mover in this space. There was high demand with the scarcity value of Tesla. Obviously now, you know, for a long time, everybody bangs the drum. Oh, they don't spend the money on advertising. But it's going to be really interesting now when we you're talking about earlier about differentiation, like every car manufacturer is producing electric vehicles now. So what does that mean by why, you know, they don't do discounts? You know, so I can't pretend to know a lot about the Tesla brand, but that's one that I find interesting. 
not necessarily positively or negatively, but just we'd be curious to see how that all unfolds, particularly as cheaper EVs enter the market and more accessible EVs enter the market. I don't know if it's the best brand, but I know one of my favorite brands in the world right now and continues to be Nike. I love everything about Nike. I don't believe in loyalty from the perspective of like, you know, I'm fiercely loyal to something. I think it's very habitual and there are elements of emotion that gets connected. And so Nike is one of those brands that kind of bucks the, I guess, the mold a little bit because I will tend to buy Nike before other stuff. But yeah, you know, I love Nike. I think obviously, you know, again, you talk about the role of things like Drive to Survive, but somebody was behind there and Nike will be thanking them for it. That movie was great. And again, like, you know, probably why it's quite prominent in my mind from a brand perspective at the moment. I love the story. I love Phil Knight's book. I love the photo that went round when LeBron James was about to become the all-time record scorer. And then it's Phil Knight, the only one in the whole crowd that isn't sitting there with his phone out, you know? That was amazing. So again, that's another thing we could talk about ages about like, you know, owning the moment, which is obviously your podcast. And the capacity to be part of a moment and how distracted people are by using their phone in that moment rather than absorbing it. That's something that I'm always quite fascinated by. But back to your original question, I think Nike. I love Nike. I mean, that photo was, I mean, just says a thousand words, right, about everything from culture to, you know, technology and and that moment. Yeah, that's a that's a great one. What do you think the most overrated trend in marketing is right now? It'd be silly of me not to say AI. I think it's great and it's enticing and, you know, I think about it sometimes from a perspective of like graphic design and kind of email content and all that sort of stuff. And so there's roles and remits for it, but just to tell you what, we as an industry, not just sport, but marketing and advertising focus, and we just love to jump onto stuff. So, yeah, I mean, trends are a fundamental's worst enemy, right. a distraction at best. My LinkedIn feed is definitely full of chat GPT, but also, of course, <laughs> lots of can this week. And I saw, um, might have been Gary Vee, but, and who, you know, who's a polarizing figure, but he did have a slide, which I saw, which was, you know, something about as everything seemingly changes, you know, remember that nothing changes regarding uh, human psychology and marketing fundamentals. That's right. Actually, what you just said there, and I think it was originally David Ogilvie, but then, you know, the quote that often gets thrown around is, from Jeff Bezos, and I'm not going to get this right, and I'm going to butcher. You know, you, you've thrown out a couple of great quotes today, and I'm going to butcher this one. But this idea of like people are so obsessed with what's changing as opposed to thinking about what's not changing, you know, and focusing on what's not changing. And again, like I'm all for trying to challenge the status quo, but there's a difference between status quo that's kind of comes across from, a, I guess, an operational perspective because of legacy or this is how we've always done it versus the human brain and it taking millions of years to evolve as opposed to technology that can take light years to, you know. So it's interesting. LinkedIn does my head in sometimes, but I also love it. I mean, I think my view on that is, right, it's like, you know, tools and tactics change. I mean, sure, if you were early on TikTok. Yeah, absolutely. There was a lot to be won there, but I guess it was, you know, what did you put on TikTok? I face this on a daily basis, you know. Like I think there's a lot of magpie bait that gets thrown around and you kind of, I think it's the fear of missing out, right? You don't want to be that person that was in charge of something and you didn't do it and look what these guys over here have done. But you're right, tactics change, but I guess you're constantly going to chase tactics if you're not really clear of what you're doing and why you're doing it. Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I guess if you just, you know, go back a year, my LinkedIn feed from Can was NFTs and Metaverse. So, Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Again, another wonderful thing that's just ripped through the sports industry, you know, about tokens and NFTs and, yeah, it goes on and on. Yeah, absolutely. So what about the opposite? What's the most underrated trend? You know, what's not being talked about enough in your view? 
Oh, this is why I love Mark because, you know, I think he's tried to elevate the conversation around those fundamentals. But yeah, I just think, again, we're not like wanting to sound like I've got everything nailed here because it's not like, you know, I tend to sometimes have to be fairly reactive, but always try and ladder it back up to a point of, does this fit what I said we wanted to do or set out to do in the first place? And yeah, I think it's just what's not thrown around enough or not looked upon enough. And sometimes I get caught up in this bubble where you just assume that everybody knows what you're talking about. But yeah, I mean, things like distinctive assets and segmentation and, you know, just strategic principles, I think that's not a trend. It should be. It certainly is in in my wheelhouse of LinkedIn because I follow a lot of people that obviously I just seek out confirmation bias to make me feel better about what I think and my point of view on everything. But I think everybody could be a bit more strategic and spend more time learning how to be strategic. It is funny, isn't it? It really bucks this conventional wisdom, which is like, you know, you know, Tim Doyle, who's one of the founders of yeah Eucalyptus. I listened to him on a podcast recently. And look, I think there's some truth in this, but he said something like, you know, marketing education is total bullshit. You know, there's nothing to be learned. And I think I sort of, I know what he's trying to say, but I think to your point, it's like, you know, it's like the four Ps. I mean, there's a lot of wisdom in that stuff. I mean, that to your point, I mean, if what if, you know, sports leagues were run by Unilever execs? I mean, it's a fascinating thought experiment because there's so much wisdom in what we know and what we've known for a hundred years. It's frustrating because these are things that people say are dead and they don't hold up, but they've held up for decades. And yet we want to buy into the three weeks worth of Mm. LinkedIn knowledge about AI. And I think, you know, it's not to say that, you know, none of that is to say that AI is not interesting and it's going to be impactful. And Oh, no, 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 absolutely. But I think you're right. I mean, I'm sure if you go into the uh, the boardroom at night, you know, they're still spending an inordinate amount of time on assets. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you get the fundamentals right and you can play with all of that stuff. And you're absolutely right. Like AI is going to change a lot. I just don't know if we'll all definitively know what it's going to change yet. Yeah. Or if I guess I like how I think about it is like, yes, it's probably going to change a lot probably in totally different ways to what we expect to use a sort of a a Tom Goodwinism. You know, you won't be able to, you know, we don't know now what it will be, but I guess it's just that equation of how much time should you be putting into that versus the fundamentals, I think. And will we use it the way that it actually can be used? And again, I'm a big fan of Tom's, but I think often he talks about we have this technology, but then we never use it the way that it actually could be used to properly benefit out of it. So yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, it's a great one. Last question, Ali, who should I have on the show next? Who's someone you think I should be speaking to? Somebody that like I've idolized for a long time. And again, it's probably back to the old kind of days of working in behavioral economics, but Phil Barden, if you haven't spoken to Phil Barden. No, I haven't. He wrote Decoded, the science behind why we buy. He's brilliant. And I think he, you know, particularly given your guest list, which to be fair, I, uh, I'm the anomaly within, but he's phenomenal. I think you would very much enjoy that conversation with Phil. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll uh, I'll try and reach out to him. Ollie, thanks so much for being on the show. I had really enjoyed that. Thank you, mate. I really appreciate being on. Thanks for listening to the On The Moment podcast. If you liked this episode, make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss upcoming episodes. And to suggest a guest or provide feedback, please visit our dedicated podcast hub at ownthemomentpod.com.